Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and this is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this special end-of-year edition of the show, we'll be reviewing the Jewish highs and lows, the oys and vays of 2011. From the bid for Palestinian statehood back in September to the non-stop protests across the Arab world, we'll look back on a year of turmoil in the region and ask what the impact has been on Israel. The Nazi jibes by John Galliano and film director Lars von Trier, easily dismissed as the rants of eccentric artists or part of a wider, more worrying picture. One of the cult series to be imported from American TV this year, Old Jews Telling Jokes. We thought it was time to launch our own British version here on Sounds Jewish. But just what makes Old Jews so funny? Some of them are fat, some of them are thin, but it doesn't make any difference. They've got a funny look about them. They're funny people. And with Hanukkah around the corner, we'll be celebrating with some donuts in the studios from Gradzinsis Noch. And slightly better for the Constitution, very excited about this, a live Hanukkah set from the guys behind the seminal album Songs in the Key of Hanukkah. Give us a little flavour, guys. <laughs> Love it, putting me in a spin already. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. And joining me in the studio this month is Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland, long-time friend of Sounds Jewish. Welcome back, Johnny. And the editor of the Jewish Quarterly magazine, Rachel Lassison, is here, an institution of Anglo-Jewish culture. Welcome to Sounds Jewish, both of you. How lovely to have you. Happy Hanukkah, happy best for the holidays and all of that. Uh, is Hanukkah a big thing for you, Rachel? Well, Hanukkah's become increasingly big to try and counter the, the effects of uh, Christmas envy that my children have laboured with for the last sort of 13 years. So it has become increasingly big to the point where there's almost sort of eight days. We're, we're Hanukkahed out by, the, by day seven. I'm like, God, stop. Johnny, in your family, they do, you do Christmas a bit, you do Hanukkah a bit, or just it's Christmas expunged? We never did any Christmas at all. It was totally expunged growing up, actually. In fact, uh, it was as if it was a sort of deliberate, ignoring, full denial posture. So we never did any of that. And uh, But now Hanukkah is very, very big. Uh, we've got two other guests as well. We've got Erin Baron-Cohen and Jules Brooks. We heard them playing uh, a snippet from uh, the Songs in the Key of Hanukkah album. Welcome, fellas. Hi. Uh, lovely to have you. Songs in the Key of Hanukkah, uh, an album that everyone should have in everyone's home. Um, why, where was the inspiration for that? Was it just there wasn't enough out there on the, in, the, in the Hanukkah labels, in, in the record shops, in our price? You thought you need to contribute to that. Yeah, I think the idea was um, we all kind of hear Christmas songs from about May or something, or June. <laughs> you know, start they start playing on the radio, and by the time it comes, you're really sick. But no one's really done really good Hanukkah songs. Uh, the songs that I grew up with, Hanukkah, I remember being actually finding them quite annoying even when I was a kid. So mm. I wanted to reinvigorate the, the whole music of Hanukkah and write some original songs. We also got invited to America to perform on Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien? Uh, I mean, on this, on the show. One level, slightly, it was a level higher than this, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't well, say, you so do yourself down. Well, yeah, no, it's kind of, sounds Irish more than, more than Jewish. But I mean, so you went on Conan to do songs in the key of Hanukkah. We actually this performed Dreidel. Um, the song that we're going we're gonna to hear a bit later, but we heard a we'll snippet from We'll play that already. for you later. Yeah, and we played that dressed as Hasidim with a black American backing band dressed as Hasidim, and a black American rapper who raps in Yiddish. It's called Why Love. 
called Why Love. Amazing character. Right, we see that's what they can do with budgets like that on on American television. I mean, we couldn't get the whole band, but it just you know, yes. an amazing kind of. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't bring our wardrobe people today, unfortunately. But no, but yeah, we can, people can imagine they can play with the audio a bit and imagine you with with big uh, with big, big Hasidic kind of outfits on. I would like everyone at this point just to kind of dip into the donut pool here yes, because this is one. what we do at Hanukkah. Mm. Typical fried. Mm. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try. It. Everyone's going to yeah. go. No, we don't touch these things. Uh, why? <laughs> What, what, why, why do we have these things? Hanukkah there may Johnny? be a reason why you don't touch them. I've just discovered <laughs> by beginning. <laughs> mm. um, is this is this something that you you do at home as well? You've got to go home and do this in, in next week. <clears throat> Weirdly, luckers were always very big in mm. uh, in our Hanukkah gatherings as family. We would we went for the lucker in a major way. The donut, I think, we drew the line at. But and now, as I'm tasting this, the the sugar crusting is quite good, and the jam when you get to it is quite good. But the rest. Is a bit sort of claggy and doughy. I think. Yeah, well, Krispy these are official, creams, perhaps. Krispy Kremes would sort of, that's an instant heart mm. attack, whereas mm. this is kind of a delayed heart yeah. attack. Well, this is what we do, this is what we do mm. at Hanukkah. Um, we eat donuts. So uh, I'm going to lick the, the sugar off my fingers and get on with the show. What may have started off as one man's personal protest in Tunisia back in February soon ignited a public mood of discontent, which then spread east across to Egypt, resulting in the forced resignation of longtime president Hosni Mubarak. These protesters in Egypt captured the mood earlier this year when discussing the old political class. We didn't want them anymore. It's too late response. I don't know why our rulers always one or ten steps behind the demands of the people. And this appetite for change then swept through Libya, Yemen and now Syria, where the UN estimates over 4,000 people have been killed in the uprising against President Assad. There are all sorts of discussions on this topic elsewhere on Guardian.co.uk, but on this programme, we're going to focus on the impact on Israel. Uh, Jonathan, you've been uh, monitoring it all year. It has been absolutely fascinating. But from the point of view of Israel, which sits in the middle of all of this, how has it changed that country's political outlook? I think Israel slightly felt as if it was just sort of the one person not invited to the party with the Arab Spring because everyone around the world was supporting the kind of people we just heard there in Tahrir Square in Cairo. You wanted to support these young people calling for revolution and freedom and democracy. And yet in Israel, the reaction, there were some Israelis who said, it can only be a good thing, it's democracy, how can we oppose it? But I think many felt very anxious about it because the bedrock of Israel's security for three decades has been a peace treaty with Egypt. And I think suddenly they realised their peace treaty was not with the Egyptian people, but it was with Mubarak and before that Anwar Sadat. And so the fear they had was, what comes now? Will there be a new government, a new regime that doesn't want to have a peace treaty with us? And the recent elections, the Muslim Brotherhood and various Salafist uh, extremist parties doing so well, has made people anxious that even if now they're not tearing up the peace treaty, maybe uh, long term they're not going to be allies. And that feeling is amplified all around the region, looking wider. Has there been, uh, as you said, uh, Israel is, is a country that likes to protest, it likes to get out there, it's got a youthful movement. Well, they, they wanted to kind of join in with the, with the kind of street protests. Well, that did happen. And there were these street protests, and you discussed them on this programme, but there were the tent protests that were in some ways modelled on the Tahrir. Uh, phenomenon. So there was definitely a bit of that. But more widely, I just think, you know, certainly in Israeli government circles, they were aware that they're on the kind of wrong side of this. So that in Syria, uh, for example, um, one of the countries that was most 
privately, obviously behind the scenes, thinking that we would, you know, and advising that it would be best if Assad actually held on, uh, was Israel. And uh, that's not anything they'd be proud of, but the reality was that they thought with Assad, he's the devil we know. And so the conversations they were having with Washington was, we're very nervous about anything that might replace Assad, even though Assad clearly is a brutal and horrible dictator. Where are we with Syria now? If Assad does fall, um, where, where would that leave Israel? Well, that's anybody's guess. I mean, the reason why partly they were wary of what was happening was they said at least it's a predictable enemy. And what comes after Assad could be another enemy, but an unpredictable one. So they're worried that there could be a civil war, which is right on Israel's border. The border has been quiet, really, since uh, the war in 1973. You could start seeing infiltrations and incursions. They're worried about that. They're worried that, like with everywhere else in the region, that it could be Islamist, you know, radicals who take over the government. It, it, you know, all kinds of constellations are possible. The optimists, we should say this, there are some optimists who think it could only be good news because one of the big strategic problems for Israel in the region has been an alliance between Syria on the one hand and Iran on the other. Iran's power in the region has partly been predicated on the fact that it has this uh, alliance with Syria, which then is in such a pivotal place. It borders Israel, but also borders Iraq. It borders Lebanon. I mean, it's in, in a critical place. If Iran loses that ally, it loses a conduit. Very practically, it cannot get weapons through to its proxy Hezbollah in Lebanon. It can't really get stuff through to Hamas in Gaza. So the, the upside, you know, from the purely Israeli strategic point of view is that maybe if Syria uh, changes, if that domino falls, Iran loses a big and crucial asset. Cast your minds back to September and the long-awaited bid for Palestinian statehood. Here's Mahmoud Abbas making his impassioned plea to the UN with the help of a translator. The question of Palestine is intricately linked with the United Nations via the resolutions adopted by its various organs and agencies and through the essential and lauded role of the United Nations uh, a huge story at the time, a huge day at the time. Jonathan, can you uh, just fill us in on the background of that and take us forward? What happened after that? Well, the day was very dramatic because he gave this speech and it was much more sort of uh, aggressive in a way than people are used to. And he referred at one point to 63 years of suffering, which, which caught a lot of people because the respectable, sort of acceptable position is that the problem is the occupation since 1967. That's 44 years. He seemed to be saying, upping the ante and saying his grievances really with 1948 and the creation of Israel. It was a, a, a very, you know, robust speech from him. But diplomatically, things have not gone much further. You know, anyone who thought that day was going to see a big vote and a Palestinian flag raised and accepted as a member of the United Nations, that didn't happen. It was kicked into the Security Council long grass, really, where it is sort of working through. And the reality is the, the Palestinians don't have the votes in the Security Council. You'd have to have nine out of the 15 uh, they don't have the votes in the Security Council to get accepted, ratified as a full member uh, that way. What they can then do, their other options is to take it to the General Assembly and they get something there sort of, it's an upgraded version of, it's not observer status, which they have now, but it's not officially member status. So that's where we are. But it's what is the significance of it is, is they've opened up another track. They've said, we don't want to always wait on negotiations with Israel. We can actually do things ourselves. Why was Israel so opposed to Palestinian nationhood and how did it uh, lobby support? 
Well, they, they agree, their issue specifically was that statehood recognition and being in the UN. And what they were worried about, I think there were many things. One of the things they were worried about was that the conflict would change its nature. First worry was, if it was accepted as a member state, then if Israel's occupying the territory of a member state, that legally is in a whole different category. It's kind of analogous to Iraq occupying Kuwait in 1990. You know, it's a complete violation of international law in a different way. The other thing they were worried about was that the, if the Palestinians are upgraded in status, they get access to some other institutions and the one that candidly the Israelis were uh, worried about was the International Criminal Court and they were fearing that Palestinians could bring war crimes prosecutions against Israel through that body so that was another concern. How do they rally support? Uh, you know they leaned very heavily, uh, they made the argument to the Americans and Europeans and mm. said we've got to negotiate this thing, you can't do it with unilateral declarations or declarations from the United Nations it doesn't happen to be my view uh, you know I think you can remind Israelis that uh, uh, Israel itself was created with a, de- de- uh, a resolution of the United Nations in 1947 so the UN I think has every role in there but uh, that argument has prevailed for the moment and, and the nation's the world, Europe, America, uh, they are saying at least go back to the negotiating table. Uh, Rachel, is this something that the Jewish Quarterly covered? I mean, I know you generally concentrate more culturally Mm. on issues, but it was such a major issue. Well, I mean, I would say actually the Quarterly is... Is being a cultural publication, you can't really ignore politics if you're going to talk about wider cultural questions anyway. But we would probably approach politics through the lens of culture. So, in fact, funnily enough, Johnny's made the exact point that we based an essay on, which was actually it's a very Zionist thing to do, to go to the UN and just declare statehood on what you have. Um, and so we, we sort of built an essay around that, which actually looked at parallels, which... Uh, parallels between the sort of infrastructure, um, governmental and social infrastructure within sort of, you know, the PA and within the sort of early years of the state of Israel. And actually, it's really quite extraordinary how many parallels there, there are. Um, is, is this one thing that does unite Israel politically? Well, it was interesting. The Israeli press will build in the build up to September kept on referring to it as the September tsunami, you know, that this was coming, this diplomatic tsunami. They thought that partly UN and then this wider uh, delegitimization, that's the word of, uh, of the hour. Uh, so there was a huge worry about it. Nevertheless, there were some voices in Israel, slightly picking up what Rachel was saying and the Jewish Quarterly essay was saying, uh, that actually the simpler, the better route for Israel would be to be the first to recognize mm. Palestinian state and to say, well, good, if you're re- accepting a state on that territory and we're where we are, that implies already acceptance mm. of the two-state solution. And there are many people writing all the time that the two-state solution is virtually on its deathbed. Mm. And what reason why I wrote here in The Guardian in favour of the statehood bid was I thought that if you got it recognised at the UN, you'd be kind of locking in, in international law almost, the two-state solution. You'd be saying the Palestinians are there, Israel's next, next door alongside it. And that would be in some ways quite a good thing. And there were. There was an Israeli minister, Isaac Herzog, a uh, former minister, saying that and for various heads of, you know, former heads of intelligence and uh, big sort of security figures who were making that argument. But over Overall, the majority was anxious. Now, a little interlude to get us in the Hanukkah mood. Eran and Jules, uh, you're going to perform for us from your album, Songs in the Key of Hanukkah. Uh, you spend a lot of your time composing uh, music for, for films, don't you, Eran? Yeah, that's, yeah, I do. Uh, I've, done, I've done a couple of them, yeah. I'm sort of just going off to uh, LA shortly to do a film called called The Dictator. Dictator. I should know that. It's a massive <laughs> Hollywood film. My, bro- my brother's in it, of course. Yeah. So, um, just about did to you do, do the score you did for that. Borat? I've done all the music, and, and for all the, everything. Uh, 
all, all, all those shows. Yeah. Uh, Have you done films. all the music for him all his all his life? Since he was born. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but I do. I've done a lot of other projects, including I have an album project called Zohar, which mixes Jewish and Arabic images with electronics. So what are you gonna what are you gonna play for us first? We're gonna play an original song that we wrote especially for the album, which is called Look to the Light. We'll light a candle to it. Let's hear it. It's Look to the Light. It is uh, Aaron Baron Cohen and Jules Brooks. Look to the light. 
This is Sounds Jewish, sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London, for The Guardian. After John Galliano had made his public outburst against Jews in a cafe in France, I was at the Cannes Film Festival in May with Lars von Trier in a press conference when he said this. What can I say? Um, I, I understand Hitler. Uh, he's not what we, you would call a good guy, but I, um, yeah, I, um, I understand much about him and I sympathise with him a little bit, yes. Not, but come on, I, I'm not for the Second World War. I am, of course, uh, very much for Jews. No, not too much, because Israel is a pain in the ass. But uh, still, um, how can I get out of this sentence? Oh, how can you get out of that? Well, you can't, Lars. It was excruciating at the time. Kirsten Dunst was sitting next to him and her little face, but she still managed to win Best Actress. he was very quickly made persona non grata by the Cannes Film Festival, whose president is Gilles Jacob, who is Jewish. Many uh, Jews are kind of there at, at the cultural height of, of France in the film industry. He was very quickly shunned mm-hmm. by Cannes. Was that the right decision? I mean, it caused an absolute furore at yeah, what he was I saying. I absolutely think so. But I do also think that for somebody who is who sees themselves as very much at the controversial edge of create you know defining what is cultural territory to be discussed and explored um sadly i actually don't think it's that surprise i mean it was shocking but in a very horrible way it wasn't actually that surprising what shocked me was the reaction personally when people said well don't, it's just a guy he's made a bit of an idiot of himself at a press conference it's a joke that's backfired to me that was the more serious problem that yeah. actually someone is, is indulging in mm. the lexicon of the holocaust mm. and nazism and using it flippantly and then people say well it doesn't really matter Aaron, do you have you uh, any uh, a kind of um, experience of, of this i mean and your brother often pushes the boundaries of, of comedy as well but not so jewish comedy well, i think comedy is a special case because comedy part of its role is to kind of push uh issues in a way that you can't really be said and in a, in a sort of funny way and, and make you sometimes realize some truths but um, and that's probably why Mel Brooks could dress up as a Nazi, and, he, and he, you know, and, and Charlie Chaplin did that as well, you know. In the Great Dictator. Uh, so it's a long history of that. But I think for it does help if you're Jewish, just as a way if you if you're black and you make a joke about black, you know your own race, it's it's a different thing. But for someone in that position, to, you know, at a major film award yeah, ceremony, he's got a microphone for the world. It's um, you know it's totally outrageous, and you know he's. Clearly, I'm not sure what he what, yeah. what he was on, but it was totally wrong. But, but another example this year was uh, Iran's National Olympic Committee, who complained that the uh, the, the, the jagged logo uh, of the London 2012 Olympics <laughs> clearly spelt the word Zion. Now, has this occurred to you? you? You you sort of live near the Olympic site. You see a lot of the logo. That's right, and I don't see the words on there at all. I mean, that was um, in a way that just sort of got laughed out of court, didn't it? When that was said, it did show reflect very badly on the Iranians. And uh, but it did come, and there was a whole slew of all that stuff going on at that time. I mean, in a way, that was the one that was least serious. The Lars von Trier thing you've mentioned, I think, uh, John Galliano with that sort of rant that he was caught on film. In yes, and Paris we've even got Madonna bar. making a film, We, uh, about Wallace Simpson, in which she thanks in the credits 
Lenny Riefenstahl and John Galliano, which oh is rather sort of strange kind of casual. And that Wallace Simpson, you know, she was Edward VIII, yeah, they've got a whole yeah, cast list there. Oh, exactly. Yeah, so it was quite, I mean, it was like retreat. Yes. And then, I mean, re- relevant to this parish was Julian Assange saying that, you know, there was a Jewish conspiracy running The Guardian, which came as news to some of The Guardian's Jewish critics. Um, and, you know, Alan Rusbridger, obviously a Jewish name, that was news to him. Um, so, you know, it did, there was a whole lot that sort of went on in one period. And it did see, it was odd, because on the one hand, it seemed quite sort of retro in that it was just sort of overt anti-Semitism. Uh, and then on the other, it kind of never went away as well. And I think this is what people have sort of pulled up with. They realise that it's very tempting for people who are not steeped in it to think of anti-Semitism as a phenomenon of the past, a mm. historic phenomenon. Uh, and then I think when you've... The shock about the Galliano, the Assange of Lars von Trier, is to realise, not my phrase, but, you know, anti-Semitism is a light sleeper, that it's sort of dormant for long periods, and then, but it doesn't take much to, to provoke it. And I think people were reminded of that this year. We have a British ambassador to Israel now, mm. Matthew Gould, Jewish himself, uh, and he was criticised for, for, for not having roots in the UK. I found this really, really shocking, and I particularly found shocking the lack of reaction to this. I mean... Uh, this was the uh, B- British Labour MP, Paul Flynn, who said that uh, Matthew Gould had sort of disqualified himself to be Israel ambassador because of various statements he had made, including the, in which he'd called himself a Zionist. Now, that you could debate, but then he was followed up. And reporters have said to him, so what did you mean by this? And he said, well, I think an ambassador should be somebody with deep roots in the UK. In other words, because he's Jewish, obviously doesn't have deep roots in the UK, and who has no Jewish loyalty. So nothing about Zionism or Israel there, no Jewish loyalty. And I just thought if in the uh, new Labour era, say a Conservative member of Parliament, had said that Paul Botang, who was Britain's High Commissioner in South Africa, shouldn't be the High Commissioner because he didn't have deep roots in the UK and shouldn't have, you know, in to use the analogy, black loyalty, I think there would have just been a huge outcry. And I, I don't think that person would be a member of parliament anymore. And yet Paul Flynn said this, and the only people who complained really were Jews yeah. in the Jewish Chronicle. And I think, uh, you know, the media commentator Roy Greenslade wrote a front page piece in the Jewish Chronicle afterwards saying the problem was people didn't understand it. And I do think we come across this a lot, where anti-Semitism is understood very well by Jews, but the themes and tropes and everything else, which are very familiar to Jews, are, are I think, a bit obscure to yeah. people who are not... And I think that's partly why the Flynn case didn't take flight. Well, exactly. At the same can at which last one was banned, uh, Mel Gibson was trying to rehabilitate himself with a terrible film called The Beaver. Um, terrible title, terrible film, terrible film in general. But there he was, Mel Gibson, back on the red carpet. Can he can rehabilitate himself? It was the day he actually he did this red carpet the day before last one So there was this kind of man who famous for anti-Semitic ranting, kind of waving to the crowds. And then the next day, last one trip kind of came out. So it, 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 it isn't something that goes away easily. Luckily, I'm pleased to say that no one really went to see Mel Gibson's film. Uh, he is coming back with a blockbuster Judah Maccabee. He can't mm. leave it alone, can he? He just can't <laughs> let it go. It's, it feels like digging a hole as well. well, well we'll see if he can rehabilitate himself in 2012. It's time for another song, I think, from Jules and Eran. What are you going to play for us next? Uh, we're going to do Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. Now, that, that's the, the classic... Mao Tzu. the classic Hanukkah song, which we all sing when you light the candles. It's an adaptation, a translation that was actually done in the 19th century, and we based it on that. But it is based on the original Mao Tzu words, actually. So it's just the words. You haven't, you haven't caught up to the tune? No, the tune is actually similar. So it's in there as well. Let's the hear Rock of similar. Ages or Mao Tzu. Rock of Ages, 
let our song praise your saving power. You amidst the raging foes were our sheltering tower, my sheltering tower, sheltering tower. Let our song praise your saving power. You amidst the raging foes were our sheltering tower, my sheltering tower, sheltering tower. Ages by Jules Brooks and Erin Baron Cohen. So, everybody, cultural standout moments of 2011, that's what we're here for. Uh, Rachel, have you got one Jewish moment that went to your heart that you cannot shake, that stayed with you throughout the year? Well, I would have to say the moment that David Grossman accepted the Wingate Prize. He flew over on the night that his new book had just appeared in Israel, so it was fantastic. The Wingate uh, Prize is, 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 is the highest honour you can bestow. 
the highest honour we can bestow indeed. But it, it was fantastic to have him there and he really gave a sort of deeply moving, very memorable speech, which I think uh, carried us way past the, you know, furore of literary prize. It was quite a good year because we had Howard Jacobson's Finkler question on the shortlist, Evan Duval's The Hair with the Amber Eyes and David Grossman's To the End of the Land. So it, was, it just felt like, you know, who is going to win it this prize? It was a big Jewish prize. It was a very, week, very see. exciting time. And actually more than it was a Jewish prize, it was a, a time when Jewish books were actually out there winning prizes all across the, in, the in kind the of cultural, cultural landscape. So it was yeah. a, actually much more than a big Jewish prize for us, yeah. actually. And did you go to the theatre this year? Yes, I did go to the theatre. Uh, highlights for me were Crazy For You, which is inspiring and brilliant. Is that Jewish? Oh, Gershwin. Yeah, yeah deeply could, Jewish. Gershwin, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Jewish genius. And, of course, the American Songbook is, of course, really the Jewish American Songbook, as we know. It was the way Jews wrote themselves into mainstream American culture. Johnny, did you go out to the theatre? Did you I did, much? I did. And it's funny because I didn't deliberately seek out Jewish theatre, but there were two things that really caught my eye. Chicken Soup with Barley Arnold by Wesker. the wonderful Arnold Wesker, who is really sadly underrated, I think, is one of the great national playwrights. They revived that play. And, I mean, uh, at the time, he was considered you know, as big as Pinter. And then it sort of, he was. He was one of the angry image. young men, him and John Osborne, etc., in that movement in the 50s. But Chicken Soup with Barley, it was, it was a production, I think, more or less 50 years on, or maybe more, I mean, it was 55 years on. And it really had stood up very, very well. Did I they mean, update There much? were brilliant performances, Samantha Spire. They didn't update much, no. It was done true to, to what it was. It's a story which has a sort of retrospective element built in because they're looking back on Cable Street in 1936 and how they, the characters, but in that you can read the wider Jewish community, has moved from being sort of fiery communist idealists in the 30s to being their sort of, you know, would-be merchants and would-be middle-class Anglo-Jews by, in the, you know, after the interval. And... Uh, everybody who sees those plays, I think British Jews who see them, will recognise characters and say, well, that's like my, in my case, that's like my Uncle Mick, uh, that's like my Aunt Sylvia, you know, and you relate to the characters. Or often they say it's nothing like the characters, I know. It's not, that's not us, that's the Coens down the road. I think perhaps the, the great Jewish moment of the year, certainly the great Jewish funeral of the year, was Amy Winehouse's. Uh, her death uh, meant a lot to so many people, but I think uh, as Jews, and, and, and we've got two musicians here in the studio, uh, there was a certain, an extra sadness that not only was a great musician gone, but a great Jewish musician had yeah. gone. Uh, Amy Winehouse's music for you, Jules? Yeah, absolutely. It was, very, um, it was a very difficult time, because I think everyone could see it coming. It wasn't um, a terrible surprise, should we say, because of the way she treated herself mm. and w- whatever demons it was that she was struggling with. And in the aftermath, the Jewishness seemed to seemed to come come to light out of her death with the funeral. People like Mark Ronson, quite high profile producers and celebs, showing up, and it was the cemetery where I'd got family buried. And it was terribly moving. It was very heart-rending, especially as she comes from Southgate, which is where I grew up. She's a musician. You know, it was it was very hard to deal with. I, I always felt that as a community, you know, you said we, we all knew that it was sort of coming and you always thought, well, should, who should have intervened? Her dad did a lot and friends did a Two lot. Two grandmas. And feel as, almost as a Jewish community, we could have done, we should have stepped in. There's a great Jew in trouble. We someone, should help. Someone should have given her some chicken soup. You know, I think... Joking aside, everyone sort of felt like we could have, you know, if we'd had the opportunity, we could have spoken to, we we could have turned her around and done something with her. But her father, Mitch, obviously would have moved heaven and earth. It was obviously impossible to do. And I think he's taken a lot of stick uh, for not having stepped in and forced her into the priory Mm. and locked the key. 
I, I think it must have been impossible. There is an assumption that Jews are different when it comes to these social problems, whether it's drug abuse or domestic violence, whatever it is. There's an assumption that the cosy Friday night in a Jewish family wouldn't allow that in its midst. Mm. And so it always comes as a shock. And, you know, you read the work of these sort of pressure groups themselves, you know, whether it's Jewish Women's Aid or whatever, Jewish charities for people with mental health issues. You really, we're, we're no different from anybody else. We're not immune to these problems. And in a way, that was a bit of a sort of, uh, that pulled us up short, I think, the, the, the story of Amy Winehouse. Well, the prize for the best TV series this year surely has to go to the Alter Cuckers from the American show, shown on BBC4, Old Jews Telling Jokes. Simple format, Old Jews Telling Jokes. Does what it says on the tallest bag. So we thought to ourselves here on Sounds Jewish, we should be launching our own version, celebrating the wit and the wisdom and the downright filthy humour of old British Jews. Don't say I didn't warn you. Here's Linda, Philip and Martin. Two grandmothers walking along the street with their babies in the pram and one says, Oi, have you got our gorgeous grandson? He's so beautiful. What a little prince. And the other one says, That's nothing. You should see the photographs. <laughs> little Melvin comes home and says, Mummy, Mummy, what's fornication? She wait till your father comes home. He's going to kill you. How dare you say this word? Go to your room. Anyway, father comes home. Says, Harry, go upstairs. And little Melville, come open school. He says, what's fornication? He says, wait till I go upstairs. Goes upstairs. He says, Melvin, you must not speak this word. It's a terrible word. And all of a sudden, the booba who's in the little flat next door comes in and says, what's going on? What's the matter, Melville? He came home and he's asked his terrible words. He says, what's his terrible word? Fornication. He wants to know what it means. He says, go downstairs, son, go downstairs. Melville, come here, come around, come into my bedroom. She says, I'll teach you what fornication is. Now, he opens up the wardrobe and pulls out a blouse. She says, Melville, this blouse is for every day. You understand this? He says, yes, Bubba. He pulls out a skirt. This skirt and this top is for the weekend. You understand this? He says, yes, Bubba. She pulls out this beautiful beaded frock and says, this is fornication. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking about Philip and his mother that died, uh, you know, it was a sad, very sad time. And anyway, they they were sitting shiver and uh, the local warden of the shul, the old, it was an old man, was coming to do the service. And Philip asked me, would you do me a favour, will you pick him up and bring him, you know? So I phoned this man up, Be- Mr Becker, and I said, Mr Becker, I know where you live, I'll come and pick you up. He says, not till after Emmerdale. <laughs> Woman goes to the doctor. She says, Oi, doctor, I've got this terrible chest. I can't stop coughing. <laughs> And the doctor goes, well, you got bronchitis. She goes, I know you don't tell me bronchitis. That's what the last doctor told me. I'm going for a second opinion. He says, I'll give you a second opinion. She says, okay. He says, you're ugly as well. There's a man. <laughs> Shh, don't make me laugh. There's a gentleman goes to the doctor. <laughs> gentleman goes to the doctor with pains in his abdomen. And uh, the doctor says, OK. So he says, go behind the screen, take down your trousers and remove your underwear and bring your knees up to your chest. Anyway, as the doctors do, being a man, I've experienced this, uh, in the jar of uh, Vaseline and he takes his finger and stips it in his hookers. And the gentleman's gone, oh, 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 doctor, oh, doctor. He says, are you all right, sir? He said, 
Oh, yes, I think so. He said, but doctor, do you think you can get another finger in there? He said, I've been doing this for 45 years. Nobody's ever asked for that. Why on earth would you want two fingers stuck in your tuchus? He said, I'd like a second opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Why are old Jews good at telling jokes? Uh, My grandfather told jokes. My dad still tells jokes around Friday night. And you can be rude. For some reason, if they're Jewish, you can also do Jewish jokes, but you can also be a bit filthier there. And mum kind of, oh, oh, you shouldn't get, but you can get away with it. It is true, actually. A few Yiddish words thrown in, and suddenly it's somehow less crude. Yeah. And you're right, people who wouldn't normally ever swear will suddenly start telling jokes involving fingers in the bottom and all the rest of it that we just heard. Fantastic. <laughs> but it's, um, but it's, it's quite true. There was something sort of very liberating. I remember my own grandfather, who was really quite a shy man, and he would not really particularly speak out uh, at social occasions. But, you know, when he had a chance to make a speech at a golden wedding, at a bar mitzvah or something, suddenly this fantastic comic timing... And, you know, an ability to milk an audience would come out. And I remember always the audience would be in tears of laughter. And my grandmother would be next to him, sort of tugging on his sleeve, stop now, Dave, stop. They're not laughing with you, they're laughing at you. You know, and that made everyone laugh even more. You know? And suddenly these people, these natural comics who were working in, you know, Schmutter's Rage by day, they, they, they had a talent. You heard it there. Oh, your family, were they funny? Not really, no. No. <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't show. There's no history of uh, humour in my family, as far as I know. My dad used to be a doctor at uh, Nightingale House, which is a home for my aged grandfather. Jews. I used to. My, I'd done some shows there. And the in people. fact, he used to come home with a cache of brilliant jokes. And I think that the jokes between the old people and the old people and the doctor and the old people and the visitors became a sort of currency, a sort of some sort of affirmation. They weren't going out. They weren't doing anything. They weren't interacting. And I think that the jokes somehow were the last sort of repository of what they could exchange Jewishly. Yeah, or suppository. If, or if, even suppository. that old joke we heard from Philip. <laughs> I thought that but didn't say it, but you actually <laughs> said it. I get away with it, I'm the host. Um, um, it has been a bumper edition of Sounds Jewish uh, for the end of 2011, our review of the year. Huge thanks to my guest, to Jonathan Friedland, as ever to Rachel Lasserson from the Jewish Quarterly, Erin Baron-Cohen and Jules Brooks. Thanks very much for your music. And thanks as ever for their support throughout the year from our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. This is me, Jason Solomon. And from my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, happy Hanukkah, happy holidays. We'll play out with another song from the brilliant Songs in the Key of Hanukkah album. Uh, what's it going to be, guys? It's time for Dreidel. Let's get dreidling. Oh,
Yeah.